Welcome to episode 91 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by uh, um, our guest commentator, Jay Healy, who uh, formerly was uh, cybersecurity uh, official in the Bush White House and is now a senior uh, fellow at the uh, Atlantic Council and a senior research scholar at Columbia University School for International and Public Affairs. Uh, Jay, welcome. Thank you very much, Stuart. Uh, and uh, uh, also uh, with us today are Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office. Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department overseeing criminal computer crime prosecutions, uh, among other things, and now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Uh, uh, Alan Cohn is here, uh, formerly with the head of strategy for DHS and second in charge of DHS policy, and now of counsel to Steptoe. And I am Stuart Baker, forma- formerly with the NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's jump right into our uh, uh, news roundup. Uh, there's two programs, uh, uh, two uh, judicial decisions uh, uh, relating to warrantless surveillance. Uh, one we covered last week. That was uh, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, it looks like Judge Leon, unless he pulls a rabbit out of the hat uh, with exclamation points attached, has run out of time uh, uh, as uh, – his uh, emergency uh, uh, order uh, uh, saying that he thought the uh, 215 program was illegal has been overtaken by events. The program ended on Sunday, and uh, the last word seems to have gone to Judge Kavanaugh uh, saying, I don't see any reason to uh, 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 let uh, Judge Leon's uh, decision stand. Uh, is that right? Where is that where we are, Michael, on that one? Well, not really. Judge Kavanaugh's opinion is just a, a basically a concurring opinion in the in the um, uh, D.C. Circuit's decision not to take it up. Uh, so right now, uh, Judge Leon's decision still is on the books. So the government's got to move to vacate it. Okay, so, so got, Judge Kavanaugh said, uh, "I don't." see any reason to believe that this program is likely to be held unconstitutional. Um, right. And that's one judge's opinion. Uh, that's right. But uh, uh, the, the entire D.C. Circuit, I thought, stayed the, uh, um, uh, the order uh, in joining the program. Right. But okay. with no opinion. Oh, right. So... so- it, I, I, so Leon's I, opinion is still on the books. Ah, yeah, yeah. So the question now, vacated. the question now will be whether it's vacated as moot. Uh, uh, but I don't think yeah. uh, it's very satisfying for Judge Leon, who did not get the last word. And uh, frankly, if you say what's one district judge's opinion versus one court of appeals uh, uh, judge's opinion, uh, you kind of tend to think that the tie goes to the court of appeals judge. Except the court of appeals judge can't do anything on his own. He has to get one other judge to agree with him. A district court judge can do whatever he wants. He's the king of his own little kingdom. Yeah. No, I, I, I think uh, I was a still in law school when somebody introduced me to the notion that megalomania was an occupational hazard for district court judges. So the other um, decision is another district court uh, in a completely different context. This is an attack on the 702 program uh, by somebody who's actually being prosecuted uh, uh, using evidence or at least a lead provided by the 702 program. And uh, we'll remember that uh, for a long time, uh, no one knew, even if they were being prosecuted uh, based on uh, a lead provided by uh, a FISA uh, intercept that uh, it was a 702 uh, warrantless uh, um, uh, intercept. Uh, now they do know, and uh, um, this defendant who's being prosecuted for material assistance to terrorism uh, is claiming that um, the entire program is unconstitutional, and so far he has lost. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, he's lost, and, and this is interesting. You know, as, as you uh, alluded to, um, here the defendant was notified that uh, 702 derived evidence is going to be used against him, so he was able to establish standing to bring suit over the uh, over the use of that 
uh, evidence. Uh, and so he, he got over the hurdle that a lot of other plaintiffs have, have, um, uh, stumbled on, such as, uh, the plaintiffs in Clapper, in the Supreme Court's decision in, in Clapper. But the court rejected his Fourth Amendment, uh, challenge, basically finding the program or the surveillance reasonable because one, he has limited privacy interests and two, the, the government has a, a significant uh, interest on the other side of the ledger. But it was in assessing his privacy interest that I thought the court said some pretty interesting and surprising uh, things, basically saying that um, when you put your communications out there into the ether, uh, which is the way I guess the judge referred to the Internet, um, you've got a reduced expectation of privacy because, you know, we all have diminished expectations out there in the ether of the, the Internet, uh, which is a pretty surprising thing. I mean, there have been courts that have said, you know, the third-party doctrine means you have no expectation of privacy in uh, information that you voluntarily reveal to your telecommunications company, such as the numbers you're dialing. But there have not been many courts that have gone so far as to say that you've got uh, no expectation of privacy in the content of what you transmit, even though your telecommunications uh, provider can access that content at will. But assuming this, uh, assuming this is assuming this is um, uh, a, an email, uh, famously, uh, a Gmail reads your uh, mail, and the and the uh, and Google believes that it can do that. It's part of their terms of service. They've defended lawsuits against them for doing that. So you have provided that secret to a third party, uh, uh, the reason it hasn't come up much is ordinarily that's protected by statute, but it's not uh, clearly protected by the Fourth Amendment, is it? Uh, well, no, I think that that's that's the nub of the issue. I think there there have been a couple of district courts that, that I can recall um, that have said you've got a diminished or, or non-existent expectation of privacy. Uh, but other courts have been very reluctant to go there, and, and um, most courts have said you do, you know, to the extent that they've addressed it, say you do have a, a constitutionally protected expectation of privacy, despite the fact that the, the provider can, and in many cases, like Google, does look at the content for its own purposes. Um, uh, so I think if we get, if there is a tenth, I think it's Tenth Circuit that would review this. This is Colorado, the district court. Um, It'll be interesting to see what they, they make of that. There, there was another interesting constitutional issue here, which I had not seen raised before, and that is um, uh, uh, the argument by the, the um, defendant that uh, Section 702 violates Article 3's case or controversy requirement by requiring the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to evaluate in a vacuum whether the government's proposed targeting and minimization procedures comply with Section 702 and the Constitution. Um, usually in a, in a FISA case or in a regular search warrant case, a, a judge is reviewing an application to engage in surveillance against a particular person. That's not what you get with 702. The government just presents its targeting and minimization procedures, and the FISA court's supposed to say, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down without any particular person being the, the target. Uh, and the judge in this case said, he said this was a novel and elegant argument, but he was not going to touch it with a ten-foot pole because he didn't want to be the first court. Now that's a uh, that's a just, so he basically just kicked the can. That's definitely a district court opinion. Uh, he says, "Well, it's it's a very persuasive, but uh, you know, I'm not sticking my neck out for this one. Uh, uh, yeah, why, why don't you just take it on up?" <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what the Tenth Circuit makes of that. You know, I I didn't look at the briefs. Uh, but it does, uh, on its face, present, I think, an interesting question because 702 really is pretty novel. I can't think of any other uh, situations where a court is just asked to re- review a program in the abstract uh, like this without uh, any individual being um, you know, having an interest at stake. No, I, I have some sympathy. Litigation, I have some sympathy for the argument because it really is handing off a. Or coming very close to handing off a sort of um, supervision of the uh, uh, executive function uh, uh, to the uh, uh, to the courts uh, uh, in a context where it it sort of feels judicial until you look closely at it and um, and then it is not clear just how judicial it is and if it's judicial there's not a lot of briefing uh, et cetera et cetera. 
so I, 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 I think that we'll he'll, we'll hear this argument again. What I thought was interesting and uh, that you haven't covered is uh, uh, the argument the government made that said uh, um, you have a reduced expectation of privacy when you call another country because at that point the other country can do with that call in terms of interception whatever it chooses to and whatever its law allows. Uh, I, and so you can't count on being protected by the U.S. Constitution, uh, and therefore you shouldn't have the same expectation of privacy in an international call that you have in a domestic call. Well, not only that, they, they also said you're subject to surveillance by us, the U.S. government. Uh, well, that means communication is going abroad. That's because uh, you have a reduced expectation of privacy. You can't you can't assume that uh, any restrictions that were imposed on the U.S. government would protect you, and therefore the U.S. government shouldn't have as many restrictions. I think that's the argument. Well, I'm not sure that's what it was. Again, I didn't read the brief, but the way it was characterized by the judge, uh, the the U.S. government's argument was that the the U.S. government itself has freewheeling surveillance authorities outside its borders. And so if you're calling people or emailing with people outside the U.S., the NSA could could sweep up your communications without uh, the need for a warrant, which um, I should go back and read the briefs. Maybe we can discuss it next week, because uh, while the Supreme Court has said the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to searches of non-U.S. persons outside the U.S., it hasn't addressed whether the Fourth Amendment applies to searches of U.S. persons outside the U.S., so that's still an open question. All right. Well, um, moving on. Uh, uh, Lab MD. Um, uh, you know, they just can't resist over-egging the pudding. Uh, uh, after a, a startling and sweeping victory in the uh, uh, in front of the administrative law judge, uh, they responded by saying, "Fine, we're going to now sue the three FTC lawyers who." Uh, uh, pursued this case as part of their jobs uh, because they they should have known that uh, the um, uh, the evidence was tainted by Tiverse's uh, um, decision to to turn uh, the FTC into a, 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 a profit center for them. Um, a, and then I see the FTC just announced that they're going to appeal the administrative law judge's uh, decision. I didn't actually dig into why they think they've got a good appeal. Uh, you, Michael, didn't think that it was a, a great uh, posture for them to be in, uh, and it looks as though they, too, just you know uh, can't resist over-egging the pudding. Yeah, and uh, so this is appropriate season for, for talking about over-egging pudding, because um, we're all going to be, I think, overstuffed at the end of uh, uh, next month. Um, and, and I think we're going to have another... A wave of things to report on out of this <laughs> one enforcement action against LabMD. We're gonna we're gonna have its lawsuit against the FTC lawyers, and then we'll have the FTC's decision, and then surely a, a uh, appeal from the FTC's decision to a court. So I'm so gonna, gonna go on. I'm gonna next it, year. I I am going to uh, invite uh, uh, Doherty to give us uh, uh, a few minutes of his time to talk about uh, the case uh, and uh, the FTC as well. My guess is he'll say yes, and the FTC will uh, uh, say, "Oh no, it's under uh, uh, it's on appeal, and therefore we won't uh, discuss it." But uh, uh, they really uh, they really have some explaining to do. So uh, uh, let's hope they're willing to send somebody to uh, to talk about the case. Uh, and um, speaking of uh, litigation. Uh, uh, Google has pretty much won its cookie case, uh, um, but not quite. Is that right? Yeah, this is an example. This is an example of uh, throwing a bowl of spaghetti against the wall and having uh, two noodles out of a whole bowl stick. But um, <laughs> they they could end up being pretty costly noodles depending on how this goes on on the merits. And this was in the Third Circuit, so. Um, uh, you know, not just a, a district court. And the court upheld the, the district court's dismissal of, of nearly all the claims. There were claims under uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Wiretap Act, the Stored Communications Act, and then some California um, statutes. And the court dismissed them all either on the ground that the plaintiffs hadn't alleged a cognizable loss under any of those uh, statutes, um, 
uh, or just hadn't met the, the standards of the, the California statutes, but it did allow to proceed um, some freestanding privacy claims under the California Constitution uh, um, and some uh, the California uh, tort uh, uh, privacy claims. So, um, you know, depending on how that goes on the merits, this could end up being a pretty significant loss for Google, even if it had the majority of claims um, successfully dismissed. Well, knowing how how um, uh, um, far to the left the Third Circuit has moved, a combination of California law and Third Circuit judicial uh, uh, interpretation ought to be a bad uh, uh, situation for Google. Well, the allegations are pretty stinky, too. I mean, you know, I don't think you have to be a left-leaning judge to think that there's something wrong if Google, in fact, uh, tricked Internet browsers into accepting cookies while telling the world that it would respect your browser settings and not, uh, you know, force cookies down your throat, so to speak. All right. Uh, keeping up the the, the, the the food theme. Nicely done. Nicely done. Uh, um, uh, uh, Jason, any thoughts on this one? I can't top that line. All right. Uh, so the NRC now, kind of to my surprise, has uh, has regs that I would have thought they had long ago. Alan, uh, what's going on with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission? Right. And I'm sorry for no cookies or noodles or, or any other foodstuffs. Um, the, the, F, the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has had uh, rules relating to cybersecurity programs uh, for nuclear power plants for a while, but they never included mandatory re- reporting requirements. They were they were voluntary, and the commission made a nice note, nod to this in their Federal Register notice that that was useful for certain reasons, for certain purposes. However, uh, that wasn't adequate. So the so the uh, the commission has gone ahead uh, and mandated reporting. Uh, and in three tiers, you need to notify the NRC within one hour uh, if you discover a cyber attack that has adversely impacted safety, security, uh, or emergency preparedness. Within four hours, if you discover an attack that could have caused an adverse impact. Um, and you have to notify within eight hours if you pick up signs of intelligence gathering or pre-operational planning. Um, so it's an interesting tiered structure of mandatory reporting. It's a good uh, uh, example of the type of notification requirements that we're likely to see all over. We're starting to see all this, over. Is, this, is, this is not so different from what DOD calls on defense contractors. So where it, it's really important, this is what we're starting to see, and it's completely different from the uh, stuff that uh, California kicked off by saying you've got to report uh, compromises of personal information. Yes, and I think it's also an example of, of something we've talked about before, which is that the independent regulatory agencies with responsibility over regulated areas are going to move forward faster uh, on these types of issues uh, than you'll see the, the, the cabinet departments move in. All right, and uh, um, um, I, I, one of our uh, regular listeners, uh, uh, Michael Farrell, has sent us a couple of stories that I just thought I'd uh, uh, mention. Uh, uh, Iranian hackers going after the State Department via social media. Uh, he pointed out that uh, uh, we really uh, um, we've gotten used to the idea that big countries with nuclear weapons programs can uh, uh, spy on uh, American officials at high levels, but that this suggests that. Uh, the Iranians are getting good enough to spearfish a lot of mid-level and lower officials. Right. So it's interesting, you know, as, as I think you said, the, the Iranians had uh, a reputation mainly as a nuisance player in this space. Um, but uh, according to these accounts, you have uh, Iranian hackers identifying individual State Department officials focusing on Iran and the Middle East breaking to their emails and their social media accounts. Um, and, and interestingly, as you said, it's, it's going after um, lower-level officials working on these specific uh, accounts in the area. And, of course, it, what's also interesting is that you had a big uptick in, in Iranian activity before mm-hmm. the and the run-up to the nuclear accords. Then you had an, a, a quiet period, and now it's back. So. Right. So uh, they they did it to show that that there could be uh, real consequences if a deal wasn't reached, and then to signal that uh, they approved of the deal, they 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 
cooled it, and now they're back because there's been a cooling off period, and why not? But it's an interesting change of tactics to, to work with social engineering, to work with spear phishing, uh, because, of course, the, the Iranians um, are also known for their willingness to use destructive at- attacks. Uh, Saudi Aramco, uh, Razgas, the Sands Casino, um, and uh, and so we and we should be under no no illusion that they won't be still willing to do those types of things in the future as well. Right. And the last thing that that he sent me just today and that I can't resist pointing to uh, is uh, we've we've heard a lot about uh, the Great Cannon and the injection attacks that the uh, um, uh, Chinese government launched on everybody who uh, crossed the Great Firewall. Uh, uh, and they used them for DDoS attacks. Uh, uh, but it turns out that they're not the only ones who are injecting uh, uh, JavaScript into uh, um, the, the traffic that uh, they uh, see. Uh, it turns out that uh, Comcast, if it thinks you're downloading copyrighted materials, uh, can inject a uh, JavaScript uh, uh, warning. Uh, telling you not to do that uh, because, of course, they are in a position to be a man in the middle. Uh, I, and what I what I find interesting about this is uh, uh, organizations like uh, uh, CDD, uh, the Center for Democracy and Technology, and uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, uh, the Berkman Center, have more or less dummied up on uh, the Chinese great canon. It's like, oh, I don't know, what's the problem? Uh, but now that um, that their traditional enemy, Comcast and, and Hollywood, are doing it, we can expect to see real upset uh, from the civil libertarians who uh, uh, apparently really can't lift their attention beyond uh, the shores of the United States. So that's my prediction. Uh, we'll see if it happens. Uh, we're just a little over, so I want to turn, if I can, uh, to Jay Healy. Uh, Jay, welcome. You've been working on cyber issues for longer than practically anybody in Washington uh, and have turned the Atlantic Council into a major player in cyber policy with your cyber statecraft initiative and the like. Uh, and uh, I've got a couple things I want to ask you about. Uh, in particular, I did a report a little while ago on uh, uh, Internet security, looking very broadly at, you know, uh, the good and the bad uh, of Internet uh, uh, communications and the efficiencies and the value it produces and all of the risks it creates. And so here's my question. Is this Internet thing worth it? Thanks a lot, Stuart. And the answer, the short answer, yes. But to get to how we answered what the, even the question was, uh, when I first got into this business, it was, I was at the Joint Task Force Computer Network Defense working with Mike Vadis when he, Michael Vadis when he was at NIPC back in the late 90s. And we all said, boy, this is getting pretty bad. We saw the headlines. We knew it seemed like it was getting worse every year. And it's now been 17 years since that. And it seems like every year since then, it has been getting worse. And and the, when we talk to our colleagues, everyone says, boy, we expect next year to be worse than this year. Mm-hmm. And so on one hand, we know as professionals, it's just awful out there. So, But we also still connect ourselves that we're coming into Christmas season. We're going to be buying devices for ourselves and for our loved ones. And so we're caught between this tension of we're all connecting evermore all the time, even those of us that know it's going to be worse. So how do we know in in modeling terms, in quantifiable terms, um, that it's going to be worth it? So we worked with the University of Denver that has a team that does a lot of ec- ec- uh, economic modeling for the National Intelligence Council World Bank. And we modeled what are the benefits of being connected from ICT, information communication technologies, out to 2030. trillion benefit of being connected via ICT. When we looked at what are the costs imposed by cybersecurity problems, we came to $20 trillion through 2030 impact on global GDP. So we're looking at $160 trillion net in benefit. Right. But we said, well, what if the future looks significantly different than the present? You know, that would call that 160 is the base case. And we looked at four different futures in case the future would look significantly worse. Yeah. How long How long does the power have to be out in New York City before you've paid back most of the advantages of, uh, of the Internet? <laughs> right. The um, And there was some great work that had done by Lloyds of London uh, that started to look at that. And 
they had, um, you know, you get the longer it's out and larger, they had three different scenarios, and it certainly gets into trillions. Um, if it's been out a longer period of time, there was great work by Scott Borg of the U.S. Cyber Consequences Unit that said, boy, if it's out through a week or so, it's not that big a deal. You know, it sucks if you're on an ice cream stand, right? but you can substitute. The power goes out for a week whenever we have a blizzard someplace uh, or when we right. have a hurricane, right. Right. and it's unpleasant, right. uh, but uh, uh, we've learned to live with it. Right. And But what we wanted to do is um, – and, and first, this is the first report we know of that tried to look broadly across all the benefits and all of the costs. Uh, CSIS and work that you were involved with did great work looking at cybercrime. That helped a lot. McKinsey, Global Institute, had done a lot of great work on, on the economics. And then we looked at these four different futures that varied from that base case. So again, the base case benefits were $160 trillion. We said there were, there were two main axes where we had uncertainties. First is we said, well, what if defense gets better than offense? What if we as defenders have a better year next year than the attackers do? And we keep that up. And we call that cyber Shangri-La. <laughs> and we ended up with about $40 trillion of, I'm sorry, $30 trillion of extra benefit, global benefit. If secure connection to the Internet is a global global right, and, and we're able to deliver on that. Then we said, well, what about the opposite? And we, uh, where secure connection to the internet isn't a human right, it's a luxury good. It's only there for those that can really afford it. And everywhere else, you know, the, the attackers don't just have the advantage like today, but they have real supremacy. Right. And we called that not, we called that the clockwork orange internet. <laughs> nice. To really try and get across this sense, you know, we've got these these neighborhoods of ultraviolence that you can't avoid necessarily. And we found that instead of net uh, $160 trillion, we were down $90 trillion from that. So we lost $90 trillion of global GDP through 2030. And frankly, it would have been worse, but we just assumed there was a saturation of catastrophe where, frankly, it just can't get any worse. I mean, it was a real drag of... Multiple percent on GDP. So that's the, um, in, is, in this case. Was that the net uh, loss after you uh, counted all the benefits from the internet? Uh, it was ninety trillion down. So instead of getting a hundred hundred and eighty trillion in benefit, you only get ninety trillion dollars. Uh, okay. So, um, so I, in, I, in overall benefit. So it was. I, I do want to uh, uh, give you special points for working in a food reference. Uh, uh, that's uh, <laughs> the, perfect. So I uh, and, and and you're not making a prediction about whether we're going to end up with a clockwork orange uh, internet. Just that uh, even if we do, there's probably still reason to keep going with uh, um, networkization of everything that we do. Correct. And, and if I can, I'll spend less time on the other two axes. We said, and then are we going to have a more government-run internet or government-controlled? Uh, we call that Leviathan Internet, where you know you've got strong borders, you've got your uh, your internet identity is less what you want it to be and less connected to whatever jurisdiction you're logging in from. Right. Certainly, with um, the recent EU cases and um, uh, on Safe Harbor and, and the rest, we're, we're seeing a lot uh, that seems to be more the case. And then we said uh, the independent internet uh, for the real nerds, we called it the full Barlow. Where governments <laughs> don't have very, very little power, and it's really the non-states. So in in the Leviathan Internet, every time a director Comey or the Chinese Communist Party says "thou shalt not," they generally get their way with it. In the independent Internet, generally the technologists are able to outfox their governments, and it continues apace. There you saw a lot less in the Leviathan Internet. It was about the same as the base case; it was only a little bit below. Right. In the independent Internet. It was, um, you got maybe an extra, um, I'm sorry, Leviathan Internet was down 30 trillion, independent Internet was about the same. So, so 30 trillion in global GDP, if you have this real state run, strong state Internet, it's still significant, but it's nowhere near as bad as the, as the Clockwork Orange. Unfortunately, as we talked to most experts, they found that we're going 
more into the government control and more into the the attackers are outpacing defenders. So we're ending up into those worst and worst cases every year, unfortunately, seem to be the expert opinion. Well, they, they, there's a connection there, too. The, the worse the crime gets, the more people want to see law enforcement play a larger role and the more they want uh, to bring law to the Internet because they think there isn't any. Uh, so it's not a surprise that uh, the two would increase together. Well, and also the more that you see states making this a national security space, um, that, I mean, let's face it, I mean, the most important conversation in D.C. is isn't happening on innovation. Um, you know, the, that doesn't have thousands of people that are getting hired. It's it's the national security space. You know, I mean, the 6,000 people are getting hired at Fort Meade, uh, not not to support innovation in the Internet. Um, so the, the cyber issues are taking over the Internet issues, and the cyber issues are dominated by people with backgrounds like ours that are coming in from Homeland Security, National Security. And so as you're, as you're bringing that around, we tend not to trust other countries very much. When we talk about international cooperation, we say, let's start with the five eyes. And so as you, as you start making that more of a global phenomena, so you have all sorts of these trends that are now, uh, that are now coming in. I mean, yeah, I, well, I think that's right, and and, and maybe we ought to uh, uh, bring in the Paris attacks. Uh, and and let me just ask you, yep. uh, where do you think that the, uh, especially European policy, which has been very uh, oppositional to the U.S., uh, uh, very focused on uh, disciplining U.S. Uh, intelligence collection, uh, uh, and also very focused on uh, bringing European law to uh, uh, the uh, the internet in a way that uh, I think most uh, European governments believe that Facebook and Google and Twitter uh, don't fully respect. Uh, um, what do you think we get out of uh, uh, Paris in terms of new technology policies out of Europe? <clears throat> Well, and I'd love to. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to the U.S. side on, on a second in there, but certainly the after the Charlie Hebdo massacre, Paris had already had even fewer restrictions, I would think, than the United States has. They certainly do now with the state of emergency, uh, with not even needing warrants in in many cases, uh, or I think in in most cases, as long as it's related to the state of the state of emergency. I've been surprised, at least on my side, in not seeing as much as I might have expected out of, for example, the Germans or or the British. Now, I haven't kept an, as much an eye on the European space. I'd be curious if, if any of the colleagues here ha- have seen that. Um, but certainly we, we can expect to see the conversation change, but I'm a bit surprised I haven't seen as much as I might have expected from Europe so far. Yeah, it, it, it has been, I mean, there's been lots of, uh, uh sympathy and support for, uh, for France, but oddly, uh, um, perhaps because the British had already had their debate and passed their, their latest law. Uh, right. but yeah, that's what I was gonna say. They've, they already, they, they were out there before the attacks. Yeah, so they're just feeling, they're feeling more or less vindicated in taking this threat seriously. Uh, um, and, and it may just be, this may just be politics. Uh, this would be a bad time for, uh, Angela Merkel to say, you know what I'm really worried about? Islamic terrorism. Cause she's just sort of opened her borders to a whole bunch of, of Syrians and she's in political hot water over that. Uh, uh, but it's also true that they were going down a road to, Put more controls on their uh, intelligence agencies, and that uh, that inclination may not have changed. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because because I would like to break this out both between the surveillance and the encryption. And in the U.S., I think the the larger the debate uh, driven by the FBI in particular was on the encryption side rather than the surveillance side. Yeah, it's on. And, uh, and, well, they, they didn't have really. And I think a bit misplaced. Yeah, uh, in Europe. Go ahead. Yeah, in, in Europe, I would be interested. I, th- I think they would have a much better case to be talking about the surveillance rather than the encryption, um, especially since it doesn't look like encryption played as big an issue in, in the terrorist plans as as, um, as we originally thought. Have we seen any indication that there was uh, 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 encrypted communication? Because uh, I, I don't think I've seen anything. 
Uh, I haven't either, and and I try to break out. So I'm a former signals intelligence officer myself from my time at NSA, and I try and break out the there's the pre there's the planning phase of the event. Um, there's the during the attack itself, and then there's after the attack. And surveillance and encryption have different roles in each of those. So for a while, it was talking about they were maybe using WhatsApp or they were maybe using their PlayStation um, to talk. But it looks like survey. It's surprising in given how pervasive surveillance already is, especially in France, and how badly this got missed on the on the planning phase. Yeah. Um, surveillance, in to my sense, is best to help spot who the bad guys are. Um, and then you need encry- you know, breaking encryption to listen to their communications. And I don't think encryption might have helped that much here because in breaking encryption, it didn't look like they were encrypted, and I don't think surveillance caught them up in the net. Yeah, my guess is, my guess on, on the surveillance front is, uh, I, I, I think the, uh, the French authorities are just overwhelmed. They can't keep track of people. Maybe not even electronically. Uh, and I'm not sure that they've spent as, uh, in the same way that the US and, uh, the UK have, have spent on, uh, uh, signals intelligence. Uh, and so they just may not have the wherewithal to get into, mm-hmm. uh, PlayStation 4, uh, communications. Uh, so they don't even know what they're missing. Yeah, yeah, and if it's PlayStation, it's well. I'll hold off on that. Let's come back to PlayStation. During the event, we know that they weren't using encryption. I mean, it seems like they were just using regular text. And to me, especially if it's going to be a short operation, that seems like a reasonable risk for them well, to take. Especially if you can um, buy a burner phone, right? That's uh, if everybody's right. got a burner phone, you hook up uh, just before the operation launches, <laughs> so you you've got everybody's phone number, uh, and you can communicate for. Hours probably before the uh, authorities figure out what's going on. Right, and then and then after the operation, it really struck me because Director Comey of the FBI has been saying, "Boy, if folks just use Apple phones, then we can't um, we can't unlock it. Uh, we can't get at the information." You know, General Hayden, Michael Hayden of NSA and CIA, would say that we don't want a situation where we have to ask Tony Soprano to unlock Tony Soprano's phone. But from what we've seen, the the French got hold of their phones and they were able to. They weren't encrypted. Well, so, so it really surprises. Yeah. What? What? I I wonder if that uh, that's being portrayed by the uh, civil liberties uh, crowd as a demonstration that it's silly to talk about uh, encryption. Yeah. But I I you know the fact is if it had been an iPhone they would have found it in the trash and they wouldn't have been able to figure out where yeah. uh, uh the uh, messages had been sent or where the phone was located uh, anywhere near as as easily. Yeah and and I'm going to I try and stay in the middle or I find myself in the middle ground on this. On one hand you've got the civil liberties crowd saying Encryption wasn't even used in this. It's not even important what Director Comey is asking for. When we all know the direction of the, the, the technology is going to be taking, if it wasn't used in this one, it will next year or the year after or five years or ten years, and we don't want to make our, our encryption policy based on just it didn't happen to be used here. Right. That said, I think there was an incredibly unseemly haste um, by the by the um, especially FBI and also NSA crowd, and again, I'm saying this is a former signature, that immediately after the attack, um, you could still smell cordite in the air. And Director Comey was out saying, God damn encryption that we can't get through. I mean, they were right out immediately in saying that we need to get through encryption on this um, in ways that I thought are was not helpful to the debate. You know, they could have come out and said, why don't those, why don't those damn Belgies get their act together on security? Why don't we have better surveillance in Europe? Why don't we go after Molenbeek, this suburb? I mean, there's so many other things that they might have said. Yeah. But they were ready with their talking points for the next time they had, um, bodies riddled, um, by 7.62 millimeter bullets. And they were ready with those talking points and, and, uh, in a way that I also don't think don't think was helpful. So my take on this was getting the past the encryption isn't going to help us as much as I think um, they say. The 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 we have to get past encryption is going to say, and it's probably going to hurt us 
more than we suspect and they're hurting overall internet security. Yeah, I, let me ask you one other question since uh, the Atlantic Council uh, uh, deals a lot with uh, uh, Europe. Uh, uh, we've seen uh, the European Court of Justice decision saying, you know, based on what we've been told, uh, the U.S. Um, uh, uh, surveillance programs are a violation of uh, uh, European human rights standards and therefore can't be adequate. Uh, and we're in the middle of a, a negotiation. Uh, the uh, uh, data protection authorities are claiming they're going to start cutting off uh, uh, access to uh, uh, data transfers uh, because of this issue. Um, and then comes Paris. Do you see any sign that those two trends are going to intersect and that uh, Europeans are going to say, well, gee, maybe maybe it makes sense to be doing surveillance uh, uh, pretty aggressively given the threat? Yes. I mean, if it if it had, did, doesn't happen after this attack, then it um, then it will after one of the next. Yeah, I'm so guessing. I I think it will change. But but to to bring this back to what we talked about about maybe having a far worse internet than we have today, one that takes away tens of trillions of dollars of global global GDP over the next fifteen years, it reminds me of the case that that Michael brought up uh, gave us details on earlier. Of, well, you can't have expectation of privacy over the Internet. You can't have expectation of privacy of what other nations are going to do. You can't have expectations if you're talking overseas of what our company is going to do. So you say, all right, well, I'll use encryption to try and have some ex- expectation of privacy. But then we're saying, well, you can't even have expectation of privacy of that because the U.S. is going to backdoor. You have to assume up. So, I mean, you end up in this real I'm, – I'm very concerned that you end up with this deep spiral – um, of everybody doing it to the other guy, you have fewer and fewer and fewer expectations. And so since um, the uh, Paris talks are going to be happening um, or already have happened when we're on, on climate talks, there you talk about sustainability. You know, you want a sustainable environment. You want the environment to be as good for our grandkids as, we, as it is for us today, if not better. And I like talking about a sustainable Internet or sustainable cyberspace. With the trends that we're talking about here um, in, in this entire podcast, I think if you think you're not you generally, Stuart, but if any of us think our kids or grandkids are going to have an Internet that's as open, free, and secure as the one that we have today, I think you really have to look at the trends that we've been talking about in this podcast and really wonder why we think that. Yeah, so um, Levi- Leviathan is clearly on the move, uh, and uh, uh, your uh, your future in which we have a Leviathan net uh, is looking a lot more likely. And, you know, frankly, it's always been an oddity of um, uh, computer technology culture that uh, mm. uh, it, the, the fact is the technology – has made surveillance much easier and, and, and inevitably yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, looking at the gathering this data, collecting the data, analyzing it as it gets easier. Uh, uh, the people who have access to that data have more control over the, uh, the actor of uh, the individuals who are being studied. Uh, uh, and maybe as a reaction to the fact that the, the technology they're pitching at us is a technology of control, they have an internal anti-control hair trigger uh, that has led to, you know, the enthusiasm for encryption, uh, the hostility to government surveillance programs. But I think that's just that's a veneer uh, uh, on top of a, a, a technology that's fundamentally controlling and pro-government. I absolutely, I certainly agree with that. But it's interesting, when I, when I come down, when I think about public policy, so I teach at, at Columbia University SEPA, so a school of international and public affairs or a public policy school. And so I'm always trying to think of what what is, as a national security U.S. government person, if I were to say what's our, what's our overall priorities for this space, and I continue to come down on the priority for a sustainable Internet, you know, that – that priority goals need to be making sure that the Internet is going to be there as an engine of innovation, of job growth, of use for national defense. Um, and, and I'll default to, my pub, to that being my priority. So for me, defense 
first and foremost, and you only intrude on that, um, having that secure cyberspace um, in, I don't want to say extreme circumstances, but only when you know you're not going to trample on, on that longer-term priorities of the United States. So, for example, on the encryption debate, you know, and, and going dark, I am, I tend to be more cautious about saying, yes, absolutely, let's make sure law enforcement and national security doesn't go dark. Um, I tend to come out much more cautious on that than I think other national security professionals, not because I'm, um, I'm soft or I don't believe in national security or I'm beholden to the, to the, um, to the privacy and civil rights community, but I think it leads to better national security outcomes for the United States over the medium and long term. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I hear you. Uh, um, I wonder if that's uh, really true. <laughs> Uh, but I, it, it, actually, let me ask, I, I, I've noticed that there's a trend, sort of a mini trend in the, the, on the civil liberties side to, to respond to Hillary's insufficiently aggressive defense mm-hmm. of, uh, 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 encryption, her, her wobbling on the issue, uh, and her recognition that, uh, Comey might have a point, uh, uh, by people saying, well, a lot of the encryption that's being used by terrorists is actually funded by the State Department under Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. Um, uh, did you follow the uh, uh, the effort to uh, uh, put those uh, tools in the hands of uh, uh, dissidents during Arab Spring and the like? Oh, it was trying to follow it some, yes, and uh, and certainly the back and forth of State Department funding tour and and NSA trying to crack it, and you can certainly understand both of those. But what and and I don't mind either of those. Absolutely, NSA should try and break it. Absolutely, State Department should pursue that because we don't have a broader national strategy that allows us to make decisions between competing public policy goals. Um, the Obama administration, I think, has done some actual pretty good work um, in getting runs. Ac- they're playing small ball and they're getting runs across the plate. But until we have an actual national strategy that says which of those two is more important, it's going to be we're going to be seeing different parts of the administration work across purposes. Well, and it's not clear even if we if the U.S. knew what it wanted that it could get it from the rest of the world. Uh, uh, we're, right. Uh, we're not. Uh, we're, right. We don't. We don't own the internet. We don't even have the majority uh, of the users by, by a long shot. Uh, uh, so we're just one more player. Uh, uh, and because of the effort to put legal restrictions on what the U.S. government can do. Uh, any government but the U.S. can do uh, rude things to punish people for their speech in the United States. Uh, And so uh, I'm not sure that uh, we will really get to write the rules here. True, true. But we we have been the biggest player. Um, When when the U.S. acts, it does tend to create norms. um, Or it can. We have more normative power through our actions. Did, did I sound like an international affairs professor there? I yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 <laughs> the, uh, my, my gag reflex is, uh, is on a hair trigger now. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if the United States does Stuxnet, um, then that's different than if just Israel does Stuxnet. It changes the debate if the U.S. is seen to be behind, to be behind certain actions. And it, it creates international norms um, – it, or it can, it has more normative power in international law to say this is what, uh, strike that I said international law out of this with this, right. with this group of characters here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I, I take your point. Uh, uh, last quick question. Uh, I, China really is hacking the permanent court of arbitration because the permanent court of arbitration <laughs> is taking uh, a case to decide the lawfulness of its actions building islands in the South China Sea. Uh, uh, is, do you think that's true? And if so, what should the U.S. do to, to kind of bring home to the rest of the world to how big a problem this is? I loved this story, and I was really – I couldn't believe this because this had actually been out for a couple of weeks before uh, uh, before I wrote about it with an Atlanta Council colleague, Ani Piparin. Um, it, was, it was found by um, by one of the cybersecurity companies, and uh, which put out a report, and it's really too bad because it's a great, great story. Um, I think the um, – so it was the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea uh, Arbitration Court. Mm-hmm. I don't believe they were judging based on the building of the islands. It was claiming territory around the the features 
is what it was what was on yes. is what was being decided and and it looks like the chinese came and they 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 hacked the website of the court we don't know if they went in to actually see the court's proceedings but they, it looks like they did a watering hole attack so that concerned parties that went to visit the website would get infected. So if you're a Philippine diplomat or if you're a Vietnamese diplomat, if you're from Steptoe and Johnson or from a, or if you're of counsel somewhere and you were going to look it up, you might have been infected by that watering hole attack. So then they might be able to collect additional intelligence. So I absolutely see this as something great. There are no norms against this, but you can certainly imagine that this is something that the Philippines, the United States, uh, other claimants to South China, China Sea Islands could certainly make hay out of. Yes. Uh, well, and it, it, it opens all kinds of opportunities for tel- intelligence collection because, uh, you know, you just start making information available to the um, uh, audience you want to hack uh, and then just uh, waterhole attack them when they come in uh, uh, to collect it. Uh, well, we when we finish up, we usually ask our guests uh, if they have any events or speeches uh, or books or writings coming out, uh, uh, anything you want to promote to the uh, uh, the audience for our podcast. Uh, nothing coming up. We're starting to head into a slow season, both at Columbia University and at the Atlanta Council. A lot of my future writing is going to continue to be looking at the dynamics of cyber conflict um, and dynamics of cyber power, um, especially looking at issues like um, uh, deterrence and issues like where you where you left off. Uh, under what circumstances it might make sense for for the United States to show restraint. Um, and also, I'm very interested in diving into what I've been calling the Cartwright conjecture, after General Cartwright, um, who proposes that if the United States were more feared in cyberspace, it would lead to better national security outcomes because people wouldn't want to mess with us. And so I think that's, a, that's an important research question, and I want to dive into that. All right. Uh, well, that's, that does sound like it would be uh, enter, an entertaining hypothesis. Uh, uh, well, Jay, it was great to talk to you, and we'll get you back. Uh, so thanks for uh, for joining us today. Uh, also, thanks to Michael Battis, Jason Weinstein, Alan Cohn. Uh, um, uh, as always, we're glad to get feedback. Uh, uh, the best kind of feedback, I should tell you, uh, is to go to iTunes, uh, uh, look up the Steptoe Cyber Law podcast, click on the uh, – uh, the logo for the new podcast, uh, that is to say the one with the, uh, uh, headphones on the globe, uh, uh, and then check the, uh, the reviews section and write a review. Uh, uh, I'm trying to get enough reviews written so there's actually, uh, so that iTunes is willing to, uh, post the reviews. They have a, a quota. They haven't told us what it is because this is Apple. I, uh, uh, but, uh, if we get enough reviews, uh, those reviews will be published uh, so please do that uh, or if you want to send us uh, 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 feedback uh, the way Michael Farrell did uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, or you can call uh, we get almost no calls uh, uh, but uh, the number is 202-862-5785 you can leave a, us a message uh, um, and uh, thank you uh, all this has been Episode 91 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We hope you'll join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.